Hello, my friends. Welcome to the September 14th, 2022 Empower Hour. We have a great show planned for you today, and we're so happy you can join us. Our guest speaker is Tom Quiggan, and he's going to be talking about the agenda to implement digital ID that will give the government total control over every aspect of our lives. Tonight's show, as well as previous episodes of the Empower Hour, will be available to rewatch. Just go to the Action for Canada website and be sure to share the link with your family and friends as well so they can watch it too. If you're watching us live on Facebook right now, click on the link provided so you can join this webinar and have access to the entire show, including being able to participate in the live Q&A at the end of our guest's presentation. Action for Canada is a grassroots movement reaching out to millions of Canadians and uniting our voices in opposition to the destructive policies tearing at the fabric of our nation. Through call to action campaigns, we equip citizens to take action. We are committed to protecting faith, family and freedom. For some of you here tonight, it's your very first time attending the Empower Hour, and it's always my pleasure to introduce you to Tanya Gaw, the founder of Action for Canada. For the past seven years, Tanya has been working to bring awareness to destructive government policies that are tearing apart our beloved country. And with Action for Canada, Tanya and her team have created an amazing campaign to bring truth to our nation. Because of Tanya's great love for our country, she is always willing to share information regarding our rights and freedoms, and her goal is to teach and empower each and every Canadian to think critically and to learn how to stand up for their rights. Tanya's faith in God gives her the courage and strength to take a stand as she helps and inspires hurting people all across this nation. And of course, every week we look forward to hearing Tanya's valuable updates, new information, and exciting wins. Will you please help me welcome the lovely Tanya Gaw? Hi, Tanya. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. As always, it's just um, just amazing to be part of this team. But uh, I just want to give always every week a big shout out to our team because it, you and I are, are the faces here on the weekly Empower Hour. But we have so many people volunteering, Sheila, Holly, Jenny in the chat to make sure you have the information that you need. Heather's uh, always putting so much time into that uh, orientation that starts at 4.45 PST time and uh, providing the updates. So Heather, thank you so much for all the work that you do as well. And we are so excited to welcome Tom Quiggan once again to the Empower Hour. Tom is a man of many talents and qualifications. He has over 30 years of practical intelligence experience in a variety of positions, including the RCMP, the Bank of Canada, the Canadian Armed Forces, and more. He is a court-qualified expert on terrorism in both the federal and criminal courts, and he is highly qualified to provide expert testimony in response to the government's malfeasance regarding the so-called COVID crisis. 
He has repeatedly called out elected officials, senators, and police in response to their appalling lies regarding the truckers' convoy. Much of his current research focuses on issues of free speech, extremism, and social unrest. And he is also an author and co-author of several books. Tonight, Tom will be discussing the agenda to implement digital ID and the purpose of creating a social credit system that will ultimately give the government total control over every aspect of our lives. Will you please help me welcome Tom Quiggin. Tom, we're so happy you can join us today and welcome to the Empower Hour. Well, thanks. It's great to be here again and uh, always, always fun to be here because there's always a ton of interesting stuff to talk about. Good to have you on the show, Tom. Thanks for that. I kind of want to just get right in here and dig into it. I always love when Heather comes on because there's so many, you know, new people that join our show or who are unfamiliar with you, maybe. And uh, you're you're an expert in terrorism. You've worked with the RCMP and CSIS, you know, strategy and tactics. Uh, You're very well versed on so many things so that when we have a tyrannical government as uh, we as such as we do today, coming in, I'd, I'd have an, um, a good idea that this is something you probably thought you were only going to experience in foreign countries. And, and here it is on our own, uh, our own land. And I just can't imagine how you feel about that after, you know, going to combat for, for Canada and uh, doing so many things in your history and having so many allies of uh, veterans whom you're also involved with, with Veterans for Freedom, who fought for this country and to consider the state Canada is in. Can you maybe open up and I wouldn't mind if you comment, uh, you know, on that a little bit as to did you ever think that you'd see a day that we were, uh, you know, coming up against our own government in such a way? Yeah, it's been a fascinating ride for the last few years, that's for sure. Um, Veterans for Freedom, for instance, was formed by a bunch of veterans. Uh, Obviously, it came out of the convoy. And it came out of the idea that we said, you know, we can't have that kind of thing happen again. We can't have that kind of brutality expressed by the state against the citizenry. Now, what's interesting is for a bunch of us, I served in places like Bosnia and Croatia. We've got guys that served in Iraq, Afghanistan. We've got veterans who've served in, you know, Cyprus, the Golan Heights, uh, Gaza, just, you know, every horrible place in the world, Mali, uh, Vietnam, whatever. And we collectively look at ourselves and we wonder, like, what are we doing as a group? Why are we here? Why are we involved in this? And the answer is all of those things we worked overseas to try and stop the aggression, the tyranny, uh, the arbitrary expression of power by government. Our government sent us overseas to work against those kinds of things in Bosnia, Croatia, Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever. And yet now we turn around and we're actually looking at ourselves saying the biggest fight yet might be right here in Canada. And to us, it's shocking. The other thing is we like to tell people and say, look, you can like us, you can dislike us, you can respect us, you can disrespect us. We're not really all that worried about it. Um, But we would like to say this. We know what stupid looks like. We know what tyranny looks like. We know what violence looks like. Because we've been there, we've seen it, we've done it. When you go to a place like Croatia or Bosnia or Serbia or 
you know, a bunch of other places, Iraq, parts of Afghanistan. Some of those countries were truly beautiful in the past. Uh, Yugoslavia being a great example, it wasn't that bad a place until tyranny was unleashed, until the politics of identity took over the different governments, and then they ripped the place apart, massacred each other, right. raped each other, genocide, war crimes, camps. Oh, it, just, it was like World War II all over again, but on a smaller scale in terms of the atrocities. So we recognize when stupid is happening, and we recognize when tyrannical is happening. And we'd like to tell people it's starting to happen here. We hear the same voices, the same words, the same approaches. So to kind of move along, uh, to sort of transition from that to tonight's you know, actual subject, which is digital ID, call it digital apartheid, whatever you want to call it, um, it is a form of digital tyranny. It is another way of a centralized government expressing absolute power over its citizenry. And a lot of people say, well, it's a conspiracy theory and Tommy, you're crazy and whatever. So I'm going to say, OK, tonight we're not going to talk about the future. We're going to talk about what's happening today. What has already happened? So in other words, no conspiracy theories, no future looks, whatever. Let's just talk about what's happening. So first question I'd like to you know, is digital tyranny possible in Canada? And the answer is yes, it's already happened. I'm one of the people it's happened to, so I'm quite aware of it. So what happened? During the convoy, the government truly decided it didn't like the convoy, it didn't like the people there, whatever. So they froze bank accounts, they froze payment systems, they froze credit cards and stuff like that. So when they were asked afterwards, like, why did they do this? The RCMP assistant commissioner, a fellow by the name of Arcand, actually stated that the purpose was directed at key protest figures and they wanted to, quote, discourage the people that are influencing the protests, unquote. So they weren't saying criminal money was involved. They weren't saying terrorist money was involved. They weren't saying you were funding anything illegal. They said it was done to discourage people. So in other words, they were trying to use shutting off your financial life as a way of silencing you. Now, they also said in later testimony, and this was amazing that they said it out loud, that it was designed to discourage other people from donating to the convoy. In other words, they were going to illegally crush the lives of some people to frighten everyone else. Now, most fascinating was the FinTrack uh, director of intelligence that testified, and FinTrack is supposed to track terrorist money, criminal money, uh, offshore tax evasion money, that kind of stuff. And the director of intelligence there, a guy by the name of Barry McKillop, said he didn't actually see any threat from the convoy. As far as he was concerned, there was no terrorism money, no criminal money, no drug money, nothing. So the government of Canada, and here's the bottom line, has frozen bank accounts, credit cards, and payment systems in order to punish those people they don't like. And by the way, they were able to do that digitally. A flick is a switch, a phone call to a bank, and your entire financial life stops. So there it is. The precedent's been set. It's been done. It can be done. And it's going to be done towards people the government chooses not to like, not because you're a drug dealer, a terrorist, or a murderer, or a rapist, or something like that. So that sets the precedent. It's already there. Now, one of the, I think, the worst possible things that could occur is already happening. It's the World Economic Forum and their so-called travel card 
and I guess it's properly known as the known traveler digital identity. So what's going to happen is they want to put an app on your phone uh, and it'll be called the you know digital identity app. Um, and this test program isn't a concept. It's not an idea. It's not a suggestion. It's happening now. Who's doing it? Well, <laughs> three different groups of people are doing it. The World Economic Forum, the government of Canada, and the government of the Netherlands are the primary sponsors of this thing. And they're doing it in conjunction with Pearson Airport, Trudeau Airport, Air Canada, KLM, and a few others. Now, here's the interesting thing. You can apply to the government to get this thing. Or if you happen to be in Pearson Airport, you can apply for it there at the Air Canada booth, which is called, and I'm not making this up, it's called the Digital ID and Facial Recognition Booth. So they're not even kind of trying to hide it, that facial recognition, digital ID, all of this stuff is going to be tied together. Now, there's a guy out there named David Gooch. He's the president of the Canadian Airports Council. And I think I'm going to read his quote directly because it's just worth hearing. So what does the Council of Canadian Airports think? Quote, maybe you do not see an individual at all as you walk through the customs hall. Your verification is done through your facial ID, which is connected to your known traveler digital identification, which is connected to your digital health information, which is connected to your digital travel documentation. So there they are. They're saying the quiet part out loud, and they actually seem proud of it. They're going to have one app on your phone, which will have everything on it, your health stuff, your travel stuff, your home residence, your phone number, your digital travel documentation, everything. Now, on the one hand, people say, well, hey, you know, this is kind of cool. I can have everything on one app. It's all there. Everything's great. Well, the flip side of this is it's called the known traveler digital identity. And the controlling body of this is going to be the World Economic Forum. So imagine there's some kind of huge storm. There's another panic. There's some kind of big terrorist attack or whatever. And everybody's thrown into upheaval. Well, guess what? The World Economic Forum bureaucrats will be able to reach into the system and turn off your digital ID if they some reason choose to dislike you. Oh, you only have three vaccines and not four. So we've just decided as of today, you can't enter Canada. You can't enter America. You can't do whatever. And they just turn it off digitally. And there you go. You're done. Your ID is gone. Your passport's gone. Your ability to travel is gone. Everything's turned off and you are stuck. So what we're looking at is a group of bureaucrats at the World Economic Forum in conjunction with the government of Canada, the airlines, et cetera, will be able to control your ability to move and travel. And basically, it's a social credit score system. If they don't like your digital health information, your travel information, your identification or whatever, they can, with a flick of a switch, turn you off and you basically cease to exist as a human being and you are left destitute and stuck wherever you are. Now, little fun fact here, just so folks know, the two countries that are behind this the most are Canada and the Netherlands. And maybe it's just a coincidence, but Canada and the Netherlands are the two countries who are both, guess what, at the leading edge of the World Economic Forum's other great program, nitrogen management in response to their so-called climate change problem. Purely a coincidence, I'm sure nothing's going on there. Anyway, perhaps 
the most important thing here in Canada that folks need to pay attention to is the central bank digital currency. Kind of a complicated concept here, but also kind of simple. Basically, what the government is saying right now is they're saying, look, money exists in two forms. You have cash in your wallet or coins, and you've got a variety of payment systems, your debit card, your visa card. You can pay with Interact and that kind of stuff. And the government says, look, you know, that's kind of cumbersome. But we really want to get rid of all of that. And we want to go to a single digital currency, which will be controlled by the central bank. So this isn't Bitcoin. This isn't Ethereum. This isn't Ripple. This is the central banks deciding they'll get rid of cash, get rid of all the payment systems and go to a central bank digital currency. No more cash, no more this, no more that. Now, it's not just Canada doing this, the European central banks doing it, the Chinese central banks doing it, Bahamas, Japan, Switzerland, the Bank of England, Sweden, Norway, and a whole bunch of other countries are looking at doing this. Now, ironically enough, we agreed to talk about this yesterday. And ha what happens today, the Financial Post came out with an article talking about the central bank creating a digital currency. And they say there's 15 people working on it. Um, the International Monetary Fund identifies Canada and says there's actually 50 people working on it. So I'm not sure what the truth is there. But obviously, the, the central bank is working on a digital currency. Now, it's the same sort of thing. Once again, it sounds like a great idea. Everything will be simple. You'll be able to make payments. You'll be able to transfer money internationally. You'll be able to send 20 bucks to your grandmother. Uh, whatever you want to do, it's all great. But here's the downside of the central bank digital currency. Every penny will be tracked forever. Every dollar will be tracked forever. So if I decide to buy a couch from my neighbor for 150 bucks, they'll know about that. If you send 20 bucks to your grandmother, they'll know about that. If you donate money to something like, I don't know, a Freedom Convoy, and then the government decides they don't like the Freedom Convoy, or if you, don't money, if you donate money to a political cause, a research cause, an overseas cause, or whatever, and the government chooses to dislike that cause, they can turn off your money, period, all of it. And they can also track any penny you ever spent and where that went next and after that and after that. So if we actually go to a central bank digital currency system, you functionally become a slave of government. In other words, anything you do to upset them or if they feel you know, angry at you because you oppose something, they can track your entire financial life instantly and everybody around you, anybody you've ever talked to, and oh yeah, by the way, turn it off and utterly destroy you financially. Um, not a place to get into it here, but Bitcoin and everything else, I know every, a lot of people think Bitcoin is the savior and it's going to be all this stuff, but the central banks and the government are also lining up Bitcoin and they're going to do something worse to Bitcoin than going to ban it. They're going to regulate it. Uh, in other words, people think, well, you'll be able to go to Bitcoin. And the answer is, yeah, not so much. That's going to be really hard, too. So if we go to a central bank digital currency system, any sort of sense of freedom, independence, a life outside of government, gone. You become a financial uh, serf, I think, is actually the fair term. You're not really a slave. You're more of a serf. You become a financial serf to the government. Now, the great granddaddy of all of these things that's happening right now, uh, and the fourth one we'll talk about here, is the ArriveCan app, which a lot of folks are familiar with. Another thing you're supposed to stick on your phone. 
Um, the government's blown about $25 million on the software development. Uh, it doesn't work on a number of different levels. There's a whole bunch of problems with it. So let's just quickly look at the problems and then say, you know, well, why are they doing this? Well, the first problem with the app is it doesn't actually work in, in a real world scenario. In other words, there have been people who are quadruple vaccinated. They have tested negative uh, leaving the country and re-entering the country. And then they get this notice that says you have to quarantine for 14 days. And of course, people are outraged, especially the quadruple vax folks. And so, you know, whoa, well, I did everything right. Why am I in trouble? And as it turns out, apparently the app just doesn't work right. Every now and again, it has a little fit and it decides to quarantine people due to some software bug. So that's kind of the first simplistic problem. The second problem is a little more difficult to understand but it again, it shows the complete illogic of the system. So in order to get your ArriveCan app, in order to travel recently, up till just a little while ago, you had to be double vaccinated. They still want to see your vaccine certificates and all this, and you have to load them on your <clears throat> ArriveCan app. So here's the issue. The first two vaccines were aimed at the original COVID-19 virus. Now, forget the efficacy, forget everything else, but that's what they were aimed at. Now, we all know that we've gone to the next variant, the next variant, Omicron, and now we're into the Omicron sub-variants. So they want to see all these vaccine certificates for the first two shots and everything else, and if you've been vaccinated all this, but the two shots they're asking about are for a virus which no longer really matters. It's gone. It's kind of gone away. We're on to the next problem here, guys. But that's what it's looking at. So even if you accept the idea of the RiveCan app and you accept the government's belief system, which you shouldn't, but let's for fun just do it for a bit, the actual application itself makes no logical sense. The other problem with the vaccine, of course, it's highly intrusive. All you're really required to cross the border is a passport. I mean, if you demand vaccines, all you really need is a vaccine certificate to meet their standard. But, oh, no, you've got to have this thing. You have your name, address, where you're traveling, who you met, who you stayed with, who you're going to quarantine with, and all this intrusive stuff. Now, just by an example, an American citizen from Seattle who comes to Canada all the time finally decided to fill out the stupid app, get it all done. He gets up to here to Canada. He gets across the border. The guy says, how you doing? Everything's great. Come on into Canada. Then he gets on his phone and he deletes the app thinking that I'm in Canada. I've entered. I don't need it anymore. He gets a phone call about two hours later and tells him he must reinstall the app. He now has to provide him his hotel, his hotel room, who he else might be staying with, who he might be meeting with. And if he doesn't immediately reinstall the app, he could be banned from entering Canada again. And you go, why? He met all the standards to get in here according to their own system, and still they're going after him. So here's another little thing about it. The, the, app, the app annoys people. It is frustratingly stupid to hard to work with. I've worked with computer stuff since the mid-1980s, and I find this listening just annoyingly stupid. Now, here's the problem. A lot of people find it annoyingly stupid as well. They find it intrusive, and they find it unconstitutional. So a lot of people just aren't traveling anymore. They say, to hell with it. I won't cross the U.S. border. And more importantly, a whole bunch of Americans are saying they won't fill it out. And tourism has dropped by about as much as 50%, according to the tourism people, because of this stupid, unrequired 
non-functional, not working app. So, you know, even by government standards, you kind of have to look at this thing and say, why do they insist on doing it? And my feeling is, my belief is, based on having been involved in this stuff for a few decades now, that the Arrive Can app is a social credit scoring system being put into place via the side door. So the government is sticking to this thing, or they seem to be. Uh, they're pouring a gazillion dollars into it. They're damaging tourism. They're upsetting everybody, but they keep on doing it. And my sense very much is they want to get you used to the idea that you have to have an app on your phone that will tell the government who you are, where you've been, what you're doing, where you've traveled. Now, what is a social credit scoring system? Uh, again, this isn't a conspiracy theory. This is already in place in China. Your phone via something like the Arrive Can app will assign you a score. Oh, you're a good citizen. You've got your seventh vaccine, which is what they're aiming for right now, which is to say the original three plus one every three months for the next year. So, oh yeah, you got all seven shots. You don't say anything bad on Twitter. Uh, your taxes are up to date. You didn't donate any money to the convoy. So you get a high social credit score. Now, let's assume you did say something mean about Trudeau on Twitter. You did do donate money to the convoy and you told them to stuff their vaccination process after the third shot and said, I'm not getting the next four shots. Your, your social credit score drops significantly. So in China, you go, go to get on a high speed chain train to get between two different cities and you're told, eh, you can't get this ticket because your social credit score is too low. Your child decides to apply for a really good university and they get in because they're really smart, but they don't get in. Why not? Your social credit score is too low, so your child's not going to university. Oh, you, got, you applied for that promotion at work? Yeah, not going to happen. Why not? Your social credit score is too low. In other words, digital identity a digital passport, a digital banking system, a digital central bank currency system, all of this stuff rolled together is your digital identity. And it gives the government 100% absolute immediate control over every aspect of your life. In other words, any sense of freedom is gone. And what you're left with is a system of absolute tyranny. So if you want to live in communist China, if you want to have your life totally controlled by a bunch of communist party bureaucrats who are not accountable in any way, shape or form, then digital ID is great. Um, if, however, you have any sense of freedom, any sense of independence, any sense of self-reliance, any sense of freedom of speech, any sense of family rights, religious rights or anything like that, then digital ID should be regarded exactly for what it is, which is centralized government tyranny, which they can execute at the literal touch of a keyboard. Now, just for one last little thought here, there have been some of the most horrible governments in the world, the government of the Soviet Union, the government of Eastern Germany. These guys did everything they could to oppress their populations, to control them. But even at their worst, the Stasi uh, intelligence service in East Germany 
never had the kind of power and control that Justin Trudeau could exercise when he shut off everybody's bank accounts of folks that they decided they didn't like. In other words, the degree of tyranny is greater now than it was under the communist Soviet Union, under it was under, say, for instance, Hitler's Germany, under Franco's Spain, whatever. So the potential for this is very, very serious. So this is why I think folks need to sort of get educated about it and start hitting back at it and start hitting back at the thin end of the wedge. In other words, the Arrive Can app is probably a great place to start and just say, we're done with this thing. We're not doing it. The central bank digital currency would be another one. It's not there yet. There's no timeline to apply it. But the fact they've got a bunch of people working on it tells you that's where they're headed. So now is the time, uh, I think, to push at it. So closing thought here, and uh, Tanya and I talked about this a bit before I started, there's a lot of bad stuff going on right now. Uh, the digital ID thing is bad. The can app thing is bad. The, the, it looks like this fall, we're going to be told we're going to get more lockdowns, more forced vaccination, whatever. But don't forget, there's also a lot of good things going on. The government of New Zealand, which was one of the most oppressive and idiotic governments in the entire vaccine world, actually gave up last week and scrapped everything. Hallelujah. The government of Denmark came out today and said for folks 50 and under, no more vaccine program. They're going to scrap the whole thing. 50 and over, if you're immunocompromised, if you've got multiple comorbidities, then you can take it, but it's your choice if you want to take it, which is like a completely fair way of doing it. So there's a lot of good stuff going on. And I'll just finish by saying, look, the convoy, um, op rolling thunder, op dignity, uh, James Topps, Freedom March across Canada. All of these things have had an effect. Uh, and for the first time in a few years, I'm actually amazed to watch the government of Justin Trudeau doing a complete 180 degree shift. And now all of a sudden, he's worried about other people being divisive. He's worried about inflation. And it's like, gee, something has changed. The government is actually, I think, for the first time, on its back foot, and it looks like it's starting to panic a bit. So I would say to folks, be encouraged, be of good cheer. Uh, there's still problems. There's, there's problems coming. Times are going to be rough, but good things are finally happening, and there's a reason to be encouraged. So anyway, that was a bit of a rant, awesome. Tanya, but uh, there we go. <laughs> Oh, no, I love listening to your rants, Tom. I didn't want to inter interrupt at all because, um, like I said, you're a man with a wealth of knowledge and uh, you just seem to flow with the information. I was taking notes <laughs> as you were talking and I know that you and I, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about some of the points. Uh, one of the things that I want to address right now, and you tell me if I'm, I'm um, on cue here, but we want to talk a little bit about solutions. And I think that what is happening in other nations and what is uh, growing in Canada is that as the backlash grows towards a government, what are they always worried about, right? They're worried about the vote. 
they're worried about how they stand in in the eyes of Canadians. Now, Trudeau hasn't worried too much about that because he basically had a majority government. He's been spinning a web, but he has had a minority government and has had to rely on Jagmeet Singh. And now we've also, you know, had a turnaround of um, leadership on the Conservative Party, which we'll talk about a little bit as well. I think people will be interested in doing that. But the major thing that we as Canadians need to unite on is a good old fashioned, long honored tradition of civil disobedience, of non-compliance. Um, Action for Canada has been on the front line here, providing people with tangible resources to educate them that even if Trudeau had issued the Federal Emergency Act for COVID, which he never did, he fraudulently did it with the um, Ottawa truckers, but not in in response to COVID. He relied on the provinces to do that. But even if he did, that uh, Federal Emergency Act said that it cannot infringe upon our Charter Rights and Bill of Rights. There should be a big period behind that, and no Canadian should have closed down their business, should have been denied access to work, or worn a mask if they didn't want to, or be forced to take this jab. So that's number one, civil disobedience. Then I would say, you know, get involved with Action for Canada's chapters. Uh, Like I say, we're going to be recruiting again and vetting and getting those into place because you need to build community within your communities. You need to come along other citizens, like we did for Luke a few weeks ago, uh, the 11-year-old boy who was being forced to take a blood transfusion with very potentially tainted blood. We came to bat for that mother. We served notices of liability to the hospital. And next thing you know, the hospital's lawyers were involved. And the CEO is coming and saying to Sammy, the mother, how can we make your stay better? That's not going to stop a lawsuit. What they've done is assault towards that little boy. Um, Had we found out when she was standing in emergency, uh, we could have maybe served and come together as a community even quicker. But there is strength in numbers. And when you know your rights, we can stand together on that. So build communities. Vote smart. Okay, don't vote the party line. Quit panicking and voting for the Conservative Party. All right, they're part of the problem. Think about who's in your community right now. BC, Manitoba, Ontario, and PEI are all having municipal elections. That means these rotten city councillors and mayors and trustees who have gotten into these positions over the last decades planning this and to bring tyranny even into our schools and, like I say, our municipalities because the WEF, The UN said our mayors and city councils are closest to the people in the the sustainable development goals. So let's use them to implement this. Think about who you're voting for. Get off your butts and get out there and give a couple of hours of time of your week to a candidate that's running and putting it all out there for you. And then again, Action for Canada has organized groups to help parents, to help students, businesses, employees and candidates. But also we're working together with pastors across Canada because we want to see them remain open. And there's many pastors that are willing to do that. So show up at their churches and support them because the government wants to close them down. And then, Tom, when you were talking about the digital banks, use cash for as long as we can use cash, buy silver, Um, take your your uh, business out of the main banks, BMO, TD, and, you know, all of the ones that, uh, you know, are supporting all of this. Uh, Never use the self-checkout. Support employees in getting paid. You use the self-checkout, you're taking away a job. Let's make sure that we don't use these uh, self-checkouts. Yes, it can be convenient, but this is about the future of your country. And if you can, get rid of your cell phone. 
Are you aware that there's many, many Canadians that don't have internet and don't have cell phones? Anyway, so Tom, in response to that, when people are wanting solutions, uh, you know, I just got to belt this out a little bit because if we can unite and come together and grow up the movement and the population to be working in sync, we can also overturn this tyranny. Anyways, I'll leave it at that for a moment (laughs) and let you respond as well. Yeah, a couple of things to pick up. I'm just trying to think. I'm just looking around here. I, I don't have my Faraday bag right here. Oh, yes, I do. Um, here we go. So first thing, uh, you, just, uh, you mentioned the idea of a cell phone. Um, one of the things you can actually do is get a dumb phone, uh, a flip phone. The old style, you know, uh, Gibbs has got one there on TV. Get a flip phone. Uh, they're dumb. Uh, they will make phone calls. They'll do texting. Uh, and they'll take photos. But that's about all they'll do. Uh, So in terms of crossing a border, traveling, whatever, you know, how come you don't have the can app? Well, my my phone doesn't do it. Uh, Perfectly legitimate answer. And a dumb phone provides you a lot more privacy. So what a lot of folks are starting to do is they'll get a smartphone, uh, especially folks who are in business or whatever. You actually need a smartphone a lot of the times these days. But you'll have a smartphone to do all your business stuff and everything else. But get a dumb phone, get a flip phone. They're very cheap to buy. They're very cheap to maintain or even get a burner phone that's a dumb phone uh, and use that for talking to people outside of business. Use that for travel purposes. Use that for going across borders. The other idea is to get a Faraday bag. Uh, You can get it on Amazon or buy it at a lot of electronic stores. And when you put your phone inside the Faraday bag, no electronic messages can get in or out of it. So if you're traveling or if you're with people you don't trust or you're going to a foreign country or you feel uh, you're a little too close to some government employees and you're worried about what they may or may not do to your phone, if your phone's in a Faraday bag, they can't touch it, uh, electronically speaking. Uh, Very good idea for travel especially. Now, politicians. Uh, Let me just say this. Politicians don't care about vaccines. They don't care about mandates. They don't care about the war in Ukraine. They don't care about the the price of wheat in China. They don't care about slave labor in Mali. Uh, They'll tell you they care, but they don't. Politicians care about two things, money and votes. And they only care about money in as much as they can get money so they can go out and get more votes. So if you are talking to a politician about anything, doesn't matter what, vaccine mandates, the war in Ukraine, whatever. Work the word voting in there and express to them the idea that if you follow this policy line, I will vote for you. If you follow that policy line, I won't. Now, one person, they don't care. But if they get 10 emails in a week or 100 emails in a month, they will start to care. So when you talk about Action for Canada or any other large group, It actually works on a politician when their EA or assistant comes to them and says, hey, something weird happened last week. We got 150 emails on this vaccine mandate thing or on this Uyghur thing in China or on the war in Ukraine. And wow, a lot of people out there really upset about this thing. Uh, You know, you need to pay attention to it. And guess what? That actually works. So if you can get 10, 20, or 100 people together and go to a politician and say, we're going to vote against you on this, that they'll pay attention to. But even better, if you could say to them, we will vote for you on a certain issue, or we will get you money and we will support you on a certain issue, 
that they'll actually pay attention to. So the democratic process works if you make it work. So let's be clear about a little something here. Our country's in kind of a mess at the moment. Uh, freedom of speech is going out the window. You've got drag queens in, you know, schools with like kids in grade three. Uh, we've got the freedom convoy assault that went on there. You've got Justin Trudeau talking about, or, or, or more correctly, Dr. Tam talking about, you now need a vaccine every three months, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You're not allowed to travel. You can't do this. You can't do that. And everybody blames Trudeau or they blame Dr. Tam or they blame, you know, the prime minister's office or whatever. And that's fine. Trudeau is a bad guy. You should be able to say that Trudeau is a bad guy. However, comma, pause for effect here. The reason we're in such a mess is the fault of the citizens. That's us. We did this. And and it's not kind of like we did it. It's what we didn't do. We let government get away with stuff. We get them let get away with corruption. We let them get away with cranking down on our freedoms. We let them get away with shutting parliament and making it irrelevant. So, yeah, Trudeau's a bad guy. Yeah, the World Economic Forum, you know, shouldn't be allowed in the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you want to point fingers at the folks that did it, that's us. We did this. So the democratic process only works if you make it work. If you don't make it work, it will turn around and crush you like any other form of government. So, yeah, that's kind of my my response to that is get involved, get out there, vote for your school trustee, find out who's doing it, vote for the city councilor and send them something that says, I think you're a moron because of X, Y, and Z, or, hey, I think you're the world's greatest person because you're doing this, that, and whatever. It actually matters. It actually works. So educate yourself, get out there, get involved. If you don't want to get involved, fine. Send money, send resources to the people that are willing to get involved, who support the kind of things you support. So, yep, blame Trudeau, blame the government, blame Ottawa. But at the end of the day, the folks that let let them get away with this crap is us. Excuse my Mm -hmm. French. Yeah. No, and, you know, a lot of people, they wanted a change from the Conservative Party many years ago. And I'm not saying that Stephen Harper was a good guy by any means. But what I am willing to say is that a lot of people like Justin Trudeau's hair, (laughs) you know, when he was being elected in back in 2015. And, you know, they just weren't thinking about uh, the... the, tangible uh, essence of what it is that he was platforming on and how that would affect the country. And it's like, we've really got to care and we've really got to get involved. So, you know, what we'll do um, is, uh, Trentio, are there questions in the, in the queue? And we'll get to Q&A. But Tom, one question I had for you, I know you want to say something there. Uh, you know, one thing I found of interest, like I said, I was making a lot of notes as you were speaking. <laughs> and, uh, you know, isn't it interesting that they're going for this facial recognition, but they've had everybody wearing the masks, even people that have been vaxxed and double vaxxed. And it's like, you know, how long is that going to go for in the airports, I guess, until they reach their goal? Yeah, it's always fun to watch the contradictions in government uh, as they don't think through one policy and they don't think through another. And the facial recognition versus the mask thing is an interesting problem. However, and I'll just say this, as facial recognition gets better, increasingly you're going to see facial recognition that works on this part of your face and whatever. The other thing that's being developed, and I know this for a different set of reasons, is gait recognition. In other words, the way you walk is almost as unique to you 
as your fingerprint is to you and your face is to you. So that's also being developed. So even if they can't see your face, if they can watch you walk, they'll be able to pick you out of a crowd, you know, 10 years later. Um, one other quick thought, people say, well, why should I vote? It doesn't matter. Or I live in Alberta. The vote doesn't matter, whatever. Well, here's some actual numbers. Here's why you should actually learn about how our system works. Justin Trudeau is the prime minister of Canada, probably legitimately, based on the fact that he got 21% of all registered voters in Canada to vote for him in the last election. So I'll say that again. 21% of all registered voters voted liberal. Ergo, Justin Trudeau is now the legitimate minority prime minister of Canada. Now, they, people say, well, I got 34% of the popular vote. It's like, no, he got 34% of people who actually voted. So once again, 21% of all registered voters voted for him. 79% of registered voters didn't vote for him, or more importantly, didn't vote at all. So uh, I believe that's an entirely possible situation where Trudeau would call an election this fall and actually get a majority government based on him requiring 24, 25% of voters to put himself past the position where he needs to be to get a majority government. He could do that by cracking down more vaccines, more mandates, more control, and then declare an economic emergency, more, you know, more control, and then be the savior by canceling student loans, universal basic income, free money for everybody, which he just came out with today. So all he needs is 25% of all registered voters to get himself into a majority prime minister position, and it's legal. It's not just, it's not moral, but it's legal. So the answer to that is, if you didn't vote last time, you're part of the problem. Um, if you don't want to vote for the Conservatives or pe you know, People's Party of Canada or whatever, fine. Pick something, pick someone, get out there and vote for anybody but this guy. Uh, and that will actually work. So people complain about, well, voting doesn't work. It's like, well, here in Ontario, we had less than 50% turnout and we got the same government over again. In Canada, we, I think the last federal election was around 60% of people actually voted. So the other 40% don't have a voice. They didn't speak. So that's your fault. Get out there, yeah, thank vote, you. do something. Yeah, thank you, Tom. And one of the most effective ways to do that are at the community level, at the uh, municipal level as well. You can have a huge impact. Uh, think about all the mayors and city councils. If they had not gone along with the provincial government's dictates, uh, because they are in violation of the uh, rights of the citizens. I was listening to a fellow last week, his name is David Barton, and he was at a conference and he ended up, I, I ended up taking out his clip and I'm going to be doing an action within a few weeks. We're going to have pastors on and uh, we're really going to talk about the impact of a vote. And he broke it down, mind you, it was in the United States that just 37 votes could vote in a whole school board trustee, uh, you know, and uh, or overturn a mayor and city council, people have no idea how important the municipal vote is and how important their vote is at all levels of government. I shouldn't just say at the municipal level. So um, that is one of the number ones for sure. And okay, so Terenzio, can we get to, I know there's a lineup, I think of questions. I certainly see them in the Q&A down at the bottom and let's, uh, let's get some people's uh, questions answered here. 
All right, so I'm going to ask a question while we're waiting for that, uh, Terenzio, and then we'll try again. Sounds good. Uh, Ron, okay, Ron has asked. Oh, I want to say to everybody that's live on Facebook as well, if you want to participate in the Q&A, there's a link to join uh, the show. So just click on that link and join us, and then you can ask your question also. Okay, Tom, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you a few questions here, and we'll see how many we can get through. How will they track people who don't have a cell phone? Ah, good point. If you don't have a cell phone and you pay cash, you become very obscure to the government. Uh, if you do have a cell phone and you do pay with a debit card or a Visa card or whatever, then you become incredibly transparent to the government. So, yeah. Uh, and the other thing, as I mentioned, um, even if you want to have a cell phone, uh, because of the convenience of mobile phone calls, which, of course, are brilliant. It's a brilliant capability. Uh, instead of having a smartphone, get a dumb phone, get a flip phone, and it's a whole lot harder to track. So no phone at all, very hard to track. Paying with cash, very hard to track. Not using debit cards, Visa cards, and all that kind of stuff makes you much more difficult to track. Uh, and by the way, just so you'll know, if you pay cash, especially if you shop with a local merchant, uh, the credit card company doesn't get to skim their three or 4% off the top of that. And that money goes to the merchant rather than going to the banking system. So that also puts more money in your community and less money in Visa, MasterCard, TD, RBC, whatever. Very good point. I love that. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Pat is asking, should we take our money out of the banks now? And if so, would we be able to purchase with it in the future or not? Your thoughts and advice. Um, if they go to a central bank digital currency system, what they will do is they'll have a fade in and a fade out system. They'll fade in the central bank digital currency and then they will fade out cash. And at a certain point, they'll say cash is no longer acceptable. You either bring it into your bank and deposit it electronically or it becomes worthless. So, you know, saving your money outside of the bank won't help you eventually. That's a problem. If you do choose to store wealth outside of the system, and this is not financial advice, this is just a personal opinion, um, you may want to look at other means of storing wealth. And by that, I mean silver, gold, that kind of thing. Uh, arable land is always a good thing to have, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, uh, we're not a financial advice situation here, and I'm not giving financial advice. I'm just making the obvious uh, statement that if you think your wealth is subject to seizure by the government, or if you think in the future a desperate government, which is running out of money and decides to just radically increase taxes and do it by just taking your money out of a bank, which they can do, it's called a bail-in in a worst-case scenario, um, then having wealth stored outside of the system in a non-digital non -digital kind of way is always a good idea. And unfortunately, it's becoming an increasingly good idea as time goes by. Right. And you just mentioned the bank bail-ins. And don't think for a second the government uh, won't do it. It was what it what we saw that happen in Greece, right? And in two, March of 2016, if I'm remembering correctly, the Liberal government signed a ba bank bail-in agreement. They had the bank bail-in terminology very, very deeply uh, buried in the financial document that they had put out there. I questioned my Liberal MP, Ken Hardy, on it, and he denied it. 
he was like, oh, no, 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 that's just for bigger businesses, etc. But the problem is, if you look at the insurance on your funds, uh, what is it, the CD, uh, what's the name of the insurance that Canada banks Deposit have? Corporation? Right, and so Canadian, there's only yep. so much... Right. So there's only so much money in that piggy bank. If the government goes in a bank bail-in, you're not going to see those funds, if ever again, or at least for a very long time. So you have to make sure that you're prepared. Here's a fun fact. The guy that actually legalized bail-ins in Canada was Harper. That happened under Harper. That happened while I was working at the Central Bank of Canada, where I learned it. The Liberals, as you correctly point out, sort of slid this thing under the radar and increased it and made it obvious that, you know, it's going to keep going and they're going to do it. So this is a thing. Now, just so folks know, a bailout is when a company goes broke or a bank goes up broke and the government just hands them a whole bunch of money in order to get them through so they can hopefully start working again. A bail-in is a real nasty trick where a lot of people think when you deposit $1,000 in the bank, that's your $1,000, and they're just keeping it for you safe. And when you decide you want to take it back, you just go in and take it back. Well, if you read the fine print, it's not actually your money anymore. It's theirs. They have it. They have control of it. And in the event of a bank going broke in a bank run, which, for instance, the one Trudeau almost started by freezing everybody's bank accounts, if the bank gets in significant financial trouble, loses liquidity, and cannot function the next day, they have the right to a bail-in, in which case they take your money, declare it to be theirs openly, and they'll give you this sort of certificate or note that says, oh, yeah, we owe you a 1000 bucks. Um, good luck getting that back later. So in an actual serious financial collapse, um, the banks have the right to just take all of your money and hand you an IOU that says, yeah, we'll give it to you sometime. All right. Yeah, you know, I, who wants a... Who wants an IOU from the bank? And that includes your safety deposit boxes as well, my friends. So if you have things that are of value in there, uh, my understanding is is that they can dive into those as well. A lot of people are talking about going to like a Prospera bank, etc. I know that they're also, if you try to open up a bank account, a new bank account now, they're doing risk assessments on you, right? After after the whole trucker situation. And, and so, you know what? I still say get your money out of the big banks why not help us uh help uh you know collapse those systems that are intentionally hurting canadians uh this is ways to uh, uh, disrupt the system and so we've got to work together on this all right uh trenzio you wanted to give it another try to ask uh okay go ahead yeah so uh, next person we have is roxy Hi, Roxy. I hope this is going to work. Can you unmute? There we go. Yay. All right. Hello. Persistence is a good thing. Hi. What's your question? Uh, I heard about the gold or the silver, but what can we do with gold or silver in a practical way? I mean, you know, can't take it to the supermarket. And if we go and trade it into the bank, we're back at square one. So how can we use gold or silver in a practical way? Yeah. Gold or silver or other precious metals should be seen as a form of insurance. Uh, I know there's people say you should invest in gold. You can make all this money, whatever. That may be true. Uh, I don't do it. And uh, you'd have to be super smart to do that. But having gold put aside is a way of ensuring value stays. So price of gold goes up, price of gold goes down. But over history, the price of gold against the price of goods required to live 
has maintained itself relatively well. So right now we're in a period of inflation, for instance, uh, inflation running in Canada, it's seven, eight percent, whatever it is, nine percent in the UK. It may go as high as 18 or 20 percent in the UK. And we've had that in Canada, by the way, in the past. If you have money sitting there in cash, it's literally rotting away. Uh, well, metaphorically rot- <laughs> rotting away, sorry, in that it's losing value as it sits there due to inflation. Whereas gold, that doesn't happen. Now, if we ever get to an absolute financial crisis, gold actually works. Anybody who's been in a war zone, anybody who's been through a conflict, uh, if you've ever been to a place like Bosnia, if you're ever in World War II, you're ever in Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever, gold actually works as a currency or as a form of money, more correctly. Gold works as a form of money. And yeah, if times ever get really tough, if we ever have, let's say, a digital failure like the one we had with Rogers a few weeks ago, where a whole bunch of people suddenly discovered their bank cards don't work and their ATMs don't work. And the bank says, yeah, sorry, can't help you. Um, If we ever got a wide scale financial failure, gold, especially in small amounts, will still work. So if I'm a store owner or a baker and I, you know, the money system is failing, and somebody walks in with a tenth of an ounce of gold and says, can I have some bread? The answer is going to be, yeah. So people say, well, you know, you can't use gold in a crisis. The answer is, well, crisis, severe crisis have shown that alternative forms of money actually work. And by money, I mean gold, silver, not currency like the Swiss franc or the Canadian dollar. So gold is a good insurance against the future. It's a good insurance against fiat currencies. It's a good insurance against inflation. Uh, it probably isn't all that useful in a normal kind of crisis, like an ice storm or something like that. But if we ever get into an actual significant major crisis, like a cyber attack against our banks, uh, gold, especially if you can buy gold in small amounts, like 10 grams or stuff like that, uh, and silver, by the way, will actually be useful. Again, ask folks in Bosnia, ask folks in Russia, Ask folks in India, ask folks in Venezuela right now, ask folks in Turkey right now that gold is becoming a part of their lives again. Yeah, thank you for that, Tom. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, Several months ago, for a couple of times, we've we've done a show on the Empower Hour, helping individuals to sort out some of these questions. So, Sheila, I don't know if you can uh, throw a couple of those in the chat that may be helpful. Uh, But even in, you know, it's funny if we go back to biblical times that it, it actually recommends buying silver and gold. And throughout history, through the training that we've done through Empower Hour, I kind of like it, you know, what uh, a suit, you know, in Roman times would have been of the same value as it was in the 1950s as it is in 2022. It's the same with a chariot to a car to a vehicle in 2022. Gold holds its value. And uh, when times get tough, you need to find a loaf of bread. And as Tom says, this would be in small uh, small uh, values, right? You don't want to bring in a, a bar of gold because not too many people will be able to uh, do much with that. And then, of course, you got to think about security. You don't store these things in your home. You figure out a way to do that. There are areas and places that do um, help you with storage. Okay, uh, Terenzio, next question, please. Yes, next question we have is from Rita. Hi, Rita. Can you unmute? Oh, there Hi. we go. Yep. Uh, Hi. Sorry, I wasn't I, I have a couple of questions um, with regards okay, to the well, digital. It, it, okay, if you could stick maybe to the one main question, because we have a lot of questions. 
What's, sure. your, what's your most important question? <laughs> well, how would the digital system affect pensions and old age securities and all of this stuff? You know, whether it's CPP, OAS, and or private uh, company pensions, or I should I should say public service pensions. Good question. Actually, no, fair question. In short, it affects them the same way it affects everything else. Uh, Because it will go to a fully digital system, which is the direction we're headed now, and especially if we get a central bank digital currency, then anything you have, whether it's a pension, a paycheck from your boss, a uh, pension from the government, uh, CPP, uh, OAP, whatever, uh, if the government chooses to go after you because they don't like you because you donated to the convoy or you own a gun or you read the wrong book or you upset Trudeau somehow or, or whoever, uh, those are the same thing. They can be shut off electronically, uh, which is, I mean, it happens right now. Most people, I think, are getting Canada pension and old age pension and that stuff. They're getting it already digitally uh, from the government that way. So those things are equally vulnerable. But if you get all of this integrated together, uh, then it becomes an even more fearsome weapon. So for instance, in order to shut down the convoy bank accounts and stuff, the government actually had to declare a state of emergency. But I don't know if you noticed, Ontario also declared a state of emergency and they decided to keep it going for the most part by simply changing the law. So we're moving in that direction. So, yeah, if the government goes full on to a digital identity where your passport is digital, your birth certificate's digital, your driver's license is digital, your old age pension is digital, and your, and your government of Canada pension is digital, if they choose to dislike you or they get upset with you, whatever, they can literally turn you off altogether. No passport, no driver's license, no old age pension. And you're actually standing there in a street corner trying to explain to people who you are, and it'll be like, yeah, you got any identification? It's like, well, yeah, they turned it all off. Uh, that's the direction they want to go. That's where they're headed in China right now. That's where the World Economic Forum wants to take the rest of us. Yeah, it can be. If we stop to think about it too much, it could be a very frightening um, ordeal. And I, and I know many people are upset by by this. Uh, we, we're already there. You know, so many people have been driven by fear in the last uh, two and a half years. And this threat certainly doesn't help that. But if they know that uh, they do have the power to bring about the kind of change by not complying, I'm hoping and praying that, that we can actually avoid all of this. Okay. Can I, sorry, can I quickly piggyback on this with regards to privacy? We had a very, uh, I've worked in the brokerage firm and banking industry. We had a very strict privacy act and was really elevated by the liberal government. How does that all fit into all of this? Like they're doing completely opposite of what the privacy act was all about. Yeah. In essence, an increase in digitalization, digitalization of any form equals a significant drop in privacy. So, for instance, just today, I mean, I just had another run-in with this. I went into a place I've never been in before to get my hair cut, uh, which they did quite well. Everything's good, as much as it can be for me. Um, and when I walk over to the cash, I see the sign, no cash, must pay a uh, bank card, credit card, whatever, and I went, oh, okay, my fault. I should have noticed on the way in. And then they said, what's your name and phone number? And I said, why do I give you my name and phone number? Oh, the computer requires it, sir. 
And I said, well, I'm not giving it to you, so work around it. Uh, anyway, I wound up paying with a debit card, which kind of didn't please me. And guess what? I'm never going back there again. But the simple reality is every time you pay with a debit card, every time you pay with a credit card, uh, every time you sign up for a new app, every time you agree to the terms and conditions on your phone, your privacy is going out the window. So just for fun, let me say this to people, and a lot of people don't believe it, but I'll tell you, look it up yourself. I don't care if you believe me or not. If you have one of these things, if you have a cell phone like this and you have Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or any of those programs where the camera and the uh, microphone get used, if you read through the privacy statement on those things, the companies refer to it as their camera. So if you have Facebook, for instance, which we, you know you can put up videos, you can take pictures and all that stuff. When you read the privacy statement, Facebook actually refers to it as their camera. So you might think you own that phone and might, you might think that the camera, that little three thing on the back there, belongs to you. But when you agree to that uh, agreement, you know, do you agree to the terms, conditions, you put yes, that's one of the things you're agreeing to, that they can turn your camera on and your microphone on at any time they want. And they say, well, you know, it's just about improving camera quality and getting the lighting to work better and all that kind of stuff. Simple reality is the government and the big tech companies have got together to literally destroy the concept of privacy. I don't know how any reasonable government could approve of big tech companies putting out these terms and conditions whereby Facebook and a whole bunch of other tech-type companies have the right to turn your camera on and off or turn your microphone on and off at any time they want to. So my basic argument to people, I say, look, privacy is gone. You should assume that anything you say or do on your phone, your laptop, your iPad, your is being copied and heard by everybody around you. Now, I'll also get quite amusingly and naively, people will say, well, yes, I have a Facebook account, but I put my privacy settings on. And the answer is, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Um, it, what you're providing yourself there is almost no protection and your hands are totally in the hands of big tech. That's just where we're at in privacy. Privacy is essentially dead. And until we push back on government and push back on the tech companies, uh, it's going to continue to be a problem. So another little thing, every store says, oh, we want your email. We want this. We want that. Well, what they're actually going to do, of course, is resell your information. So the business model for Uber, for instance, is they're never going to get make money driving people around in taxis below cost. What they're doing is they're collecting all your personal information, where you go, when you go, who you travel with, whose house you go to. Did you go to the concert last week? Did you shop at Walmart? Did you go to whatever? They compile all that data and resell it. And then you are targeted later for target-specific advertising or that information is also sold to the government to explain what your behavior is. What kind of books do you buy? Where do you go? What kind of food do you eat? Did you eat too many carbon-based foods last week? In which case, we're going to start cutting off your groceries. You're not going to be allowed to buy any more meat next week because you bought too much meat last week. So yeah, that's kind of a problem. Your, your privacy is gone and that is going, it can and will be used against you as they often say. 
Right. And Canadians have just simply been lured into this because of the convenience of it all. It all seems so easy, right? Um, and so you just keep signing up, you keep adding apps to your phone, but it really is to your own demise. Now, you know, you talk about uh, the technology firms and the government, but we should include the RCMP in there because there was the recent report uh, where the former privacy commissioner had said for himself, talking about privacy and cell phones, that they're actually tapping into those without uh, citizens' awareness. The RCMP had admitted it. And a privacy commissioner said that he had no idea that this was going on. And uh, so that's one reason why the Faraday bags really do make sense. I ordered one yesterday, actually. And the other, um, you know, point of this is, is uh, purchasing these dumb phones. I know a lot of people in the chat had been asking, where do you get these? Because I thought they were going to actually cease making flip phones because they want to force people into this digital system. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a number of companies uh, who are reevaluating the cell phone market and they're trying to, you know, I mean, they're always trying to improve their market. They're trying to make a better phone. It's got three cameras. It's got four cameras. It's got, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but what they're discovering is the flip phones, which were due to be phased out, are now becoming popular again, partly for cost because we're moving into a recession, partly for cost because of poor countries. You know, you, uh, you know, the idea of a mobile phone is such an attractive thing, but if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. Um, and also partly because large numbers of people who do travel, who are increasingly suspicious of government, are recognizing the idea that if you're going to travel across borders or if you're going to travel out of your home area or whatever – you're better off to have a dumb phone with you. So uh, you can buy flip phones in a lot of grocery stores and stuff like that, where you can buy burner phones, Walmart, places like that. Uh, I haven't looked on Amazon lately. I did a while ago, and they were still selling flip phones. Uh, they're much cheaper than a, a, a smartphone, and you can get uh, pay-as-you-go plans for them and that sort of thing. So get a burner phone, uh, which you can do in like most tech stores in most malls. Uh, or buy your own flip phone and then just get a pay-as-you-go program for it. Okay, thanks for that, Tom. Um, do you have time for a few more questions? Uh, sure. Okay, Marianne has asked, how much is Huawei involved in tracking Canadians? Sheree was involved with giving Huawei access to Canada's internet. I haven't actually heard much about that uh, lately, about this... Huawei. What, what do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, Huawei is... Um, I mean, as bad as American tech companies are, and here I'm thinking of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and whatever, Huawei, of course, are the, they're the hardware behind a lot of this stuff. They are by far and away worse than even the most horrible U.S.-based SoCal tech company. Um, Huawei, to be clear, they describe themselves as a private corporation, which is true in the Chinese sense of the word. But what that really means is they answer to the government on every possible issue. The guy who's head of Huawei is a former PLA officer. Uh, so the connection between the government and Huawei is that close. Um, now, the thing which uh, – so Huawei has been banned by some countries from putting servers into the new 5G system because they, a bunch of countries have finally realized that Huawei – uses their technology to spy on everyone all the time. They put backdoors in all their servers, backdoors in their phone. They are just a horrible, horrible communist company. Now, the thing with Sade, and this is where it went, I think one of the things that took Sade out of the competition was, 
it became obvious, it became clear, it was true, that Sade was doing work for Huawei. So the question is, well, what kind of work are you doing? I don't think you're a software writer. I don't think you're a server installer. You're a politician. So it would seem to me he was doing lobbying work. He was advancing the interests of the company in Canada through a business or political kind of way. Sade's problem was he wouldn't answer the question how much money he got paid. And he said, well, there's nothing wrong with working for a foreign corporation. People can do that. And it's like, yeah, you know, fair enough. Uh, lots of people work for, you know, foreign-based companies here in Canada. Um, but not every one of them is run by the Chinese communist government. And not every one of them is being banned all over the world because of their horrific spying activity. So when Share wouldn't answer the question how much money he was making, that to me was the big flashing red light. Uh, that this guy really shouldn't be near anything. Liberal Party, Conservative Party, NDP Party, Green Party, uh, blah, 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 Lobster Party. This guy should not be in anybody's political party in any kind of responsible position until he says what he was doing for Huawei. And my guess is he wouldn't say it because it wasn't good. Yeah, that's a big no-no. I know that when we were um, faced with the legalization of recreational marijuana in Canada, and my objection was put to putting it in 12-year-olds' hands. I don't care what adults do. But there were many, once we started doing the research, many sitting elected officials who used their time to advance this then ended up not running again and so then ended up part of the marijuana drug trafficking, shall I say, which enriched themselves. So, yeah, it's, you know, we got these rules in place for a reason, and it's amazing how many of them get away with it, which I hope to change in the future by tightening up, uh, you know, the laws and the responsibilities of elected yeah. officials. Bit of a long story, but I'm working on a financial project with a couple other people right now on the whole marijuana legalization process. And people said, oh, Trudeau's going to legalize marijuana because he's cool. He's a hippie. Look at him. He's got long hair. Let's all smoke dope. And why not? My impression very much based on my initial research is that Trudeau's intent on legalizing marijuana was to take a criminal industry, make it a legal industry. And then it's not exactly insider trading, but it's pretty much insider trading. What he was doing was telling a number of contacts, a number of people associated with the Trudeau Foundation, this is what the law will say. This is when it's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. If you want to invest in marijuana, now is the time to, to do it. So what happened is a whole bunch of people poured a whole bunch of money in at the front end of this system, and they made a killing because the initial rush to move to a legalized marijuana industry had a few bazillion dollars pour into it. Now, of course, a whole bunch of the companies are going broke, and now a whole bunch of the private stores are going broke. But my impression is a bunch of people around Trudeau profited off that very handsomely, and probably legally, although not necessarily morally, uh, and then they sold out when they made a ton of money, and now the industry will continue to stumble along like it is, and I don't know where it's going. But yeah, I think the legalization of marijuana was much more a financial move than it was a legal, social, or moral move on the part of the government. 
Right. Yeah, I'd agree. And and I think part of it was very much political and working towards this as well as they wanted to get more and more Canadians, especially young people, uh, reliant on the government. And, you know, they do like to get our kids, you know, hooked on the marijuana because then, you know, they're not necessarily all achieving what they could had they not uh, succumbed to it. But the plans back in the first Liberal um, meeting that they had of their uh, of their cabinet back in April of 2016 was what was on the slate was to legalize all drugs, which we're once again hearing about this year, and and that they're going to do that. And if you look at good socialist countries, they follow by legalizing prostitution, they they legalize all drugs, and they really make a complete mess of society. Yeah, just a quick little thought there as as Trudeau moves towards, politely put, restructuring our economy. Uh, other people would say looting the treasure or hollowing out the government. Uh, a lot of people go, well, Trudeau is Hitler. And I think, well, no, he's not. He, he's not Hitler. No, Trudeau is Stalin. And it's like, well, no, Trudeau isn't Stalin. I mean, I don't like the guy either, but he's not Stalin. But if you want to look at a model for how Trudeau is moving the government towards total centralization, as Trudeau is moving our government to more socialist or fascist system, depending on how you define those terms. The model to look at is Venezuela. When Chavez took over Venezuela in 1998, the country was reasonably prosperous. It had an oil industry, had a tourism industry, had a food industry, had a massive booming construction sector. And it had an education system that was dragging a whole lot of people off the streets, putting them into school because they needed people to run the oil refineries. They needed people to build hotels. They needed people to run the airplanes. So Venezuela was in pretty good shape in 98. Chavez, between 98 and about 2005, <coughs> sorry, 2005, was able to hollow out the economy, take complete control of the press, take complete control of the judiciary and hollowed out the military to a point where it was a party military rather than a state military. And that took him about seven or eight years, basically. And then after that, um, Venezuela, I mean, slid into a point where they had uh, hyperinflation, where people were eating their dogs, where about four to five million people left the country because of the over-centralization and the over-socialization uh, of the government, and they destroyed a perfectly functional government. They destroyed a perfectly functional society. And again, if you're looking for a model on where Canada is going and what it's going to look like if Mr. Trudeau gets another four to five year term on top of where he is right now, or he's able to run this term out to 2025, uh, the model to, to compare us to is uh, Venezuela. Yeah, absolutely. I remember having conversations about this with uh, Liberal MP Ken Hardy. And uh, he would say, look at Venezuela, like, a, you know, this was many years ago, as if this was the model from which we should be looking to. And when you, you take a look at that society and you dig in, you see how the uh, citizens are suffering. And, you know, the moral and ethical decay and the tyrannical government, it's just no country to compare to. But it shows me how far back that, you know, the Liberal government had indeed had this plan to demolish our democracy. And it is just sickening, you know, uh, that more Canadians could not see it six years ago before, you know, re-electing him and then continuing on doing this. 
But yeah. um, it's okay. just a, another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one more interesting little thought, just to throw this into the theme. This is not a Hitler analogy. Trudeau's not Hitler. Let's be clear. However, one thing that's worth looking at is the Weimar Republic in Germany that existed before Hitler came to power, a completely debauched government. It lost any sense of morals, prostitution, child prostitution, everything was going on wide open. It was like party central for Europe at the time. And when you see a government becoming completely debauched, when it loses its moral compass altogether, and it says, you know, it's not just that some things are okay. It's like, yeah, everything's okay. We now see people, you know, some teacher just got fired in the United States for saying, well, you know, you shouldn't call them pedophiles. They're minor attracted people and they're really okay. And they should be left alone with five-year-olds because, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And the lesson from that maybe is when you have a government that's completely debauched, it loses control of its economy and goes into a period of hyperinflation. What came after the Weimar Republic? Hitler. Uh, you know, it's just... That's it's a common theme through history when governments lose their moral compass and whatever provided that moral compass, whether it was Christianity, Judaism, a belief in Greek gods, a belief in Roman gods, whatever. As long as your government has a moral compass and at least tries to kind of sometimes put society on some sort of moral basis with some sort of compass, things will kind of work out mostly sort of. But if, you, if your government loses its moral compass in its entirety, you drop into debauchery, and that basically represents the end of your civilization. But but don't you think that's where we are, Tom? Because they are yeah, looking to normalize exactly. that's pedophilia. Where we're headed, yeah. Right. No, I think yep. we're there, though. I mean, when we see what's going on with the schools en masse, they're bringing, you know, grooming our kids. And then we've got this uh, injection that they 100% know are creating great harm and killing people. So I, I don't know how we could not compare Trudeau to Hitler at the same time, because there was Dr. Mengele, we got Dr. Tam, we got Dr. Pawnee, yep. right? Yeah, they're but, literally but just, doing just experiments clear, in citizens. Yeah. Just to be clear, all of that happened before Hitler. The reason Hitler was able to take power was because the society had collapsed in on itself. It became decadent. It became debauched. It became poor. It lost any direction. And what's possible in those times is that's when you get a proverbial strongman comes along. So the path that Trudeau has put us on right now and the path Mr. Biden is putting us on and others, it's the same problem in Europe, uh, is, yeah, we've lost touch with the economy. We can just print our way to, you know, wealth. Uh, we've lost touch with reality. Yeah, send all the factories to China. That's fine. Uh, we've lost touch with any sense of moral compass. Uh, you know, we, we here in North America and Europe, we talk about Judeo-Christian values. Other countries had other things that gave them moral compasses. But when you lose touch with the economy, when you lose touch with social reality, when you lose your moral compass, your society goes into decay. And yeah, that's where we're at right now. Our Western society, such as it is, is teaching itself to hate itself. Uh, it's teaching itself to destroy its own children and to destroy its own economy. And people like Trudeau actually think this is a great idea in the sense that they want more central power, more central control. The more people lose money, the more the middle class gets crushed the more they're able to advocate more welfare, more handouts, more universal basic income and that kind of stuff. And the lesson of history over the last 5,000 years is this always turns out bad. Uh, so right now we're on a path where if we don't smarten up and get going, where we're going to go in the next three, five, 10 years is not clear. 
But all of the indicators say we're moving into a period of moral decay, financial decay, social decay, and your standard of living, et cetera, is going to go substantially downhill, not uphill. Right. If we don't step in and do something about this, absolutely. Uh, you know, I agree with you. I think we're there. And I think that Canadians don't understand. They, they, they had an excuse at first. They didn't see the war that we're in because it was mostly an invisible war, unless you were, you know, more finely in tuned with decisions that the government has been making, like you and I have been in the last, for myself, seven years. And, but now they have no excuses. It is no longer an invisible war. This war War is right out there in front of us. It's a war against the family. It's a war against our children. It's against our elderly. It's against businesses. It's against anything that we held dear in this country. And we really need to come together and uh, fight. So, Tom, um, I just want to ask you one more question. I know somebody else had asked this as well. You have connections with the military, some military people, and with police. In law enforcement in Canada, what would you say is is the temperature in Canada right now as far as uh, these individuals uh, committing to their oath ultimately rather than a tyrannical government? <laughs> You're trying to get me in trouble I know it's a loaded here? question, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Dis- let, let me just say this. I'm, okay, uh, I won't answer that question, but I'll tell you something else I'm doing. <laughs> okay. Um, In Canada and in Western societies, the military, and we'll talk specifically about the military here, serves the state. It serves the good of the state. It serves the government. It serves the will of the people. In communist China, a lot of people don't realize the People's Liberation Army doesn't answer to the government, to the parliament. Uh, It doesn't answer to, it doesn't even actually answer to President Xi of China. It answers to the head of the Communist Party of Canada which just happened, or Canada, oops, Communist Party of <laughs> easy China. easy to confuse. Sorry about that, little, uh, right. little Freudian thing A little there. slip of the tongue, um, right? <laughs> yeah, so the People's Liberation Army answers to the head of the Communist Party, and the army, the military, is there to support the Communist Party. Now, one of the things it helps out the party with is defending the country, but it's there to support the party. What we're seeing happening in Canada right now, in America and in Europe, is the militaries are being hollowed out. So we're actually, we know we've got people in the military sending us stuff, sending us papers, documents, whatever, saying, oh my God, did you see this? So we're actually getting commanders in the military saying, now it's not your job to think about it. Your job is to just do it. Get the vaccine because you're told to. And if you say, well, isn't that an illegal order? Uh, Didn't we have this with Mefloquin? It's It's for the good of the country. Just do it. So the military, contrary to what people think, is always trained to think. So if your commander says, we want you to drop some mortar fire on that building, and you say, wow, I think that's a school. Matter of fact, we did recce on that yesterday. We saw a school bus there. Uh, You are obliged as a soldier to point out that the order might be illegal and bad. And then the commander has to make a decision to go ahead or not. But what we're getting from people now is increasingly the view in the military is that's what the government wants. That's what we're going to do. And anybody who rejects the government's will, they themselves will be rejected and tossed out. So one of the purposes, I think, of this 100 percent vaccine mandate that General Air is trying to pursue. And by the way, we're going to explain later how that guy got chosen. It's because he's 100 percent compliant with the government. One of the reasons for the whole hard crackdown inside the military and the vaccine mandate 
is it's cleaning out anybody who's got the guts to stand up and say, this is not only illegal and unconstitutional, it's also bad for the military because it decreases combat readiness while increasing cost. So I think that's where the military is going in the future in Canada. It's not there yet. It's not yet a party army in the same way that the, the PLA is. But that's the direction it's moving in Canada. That's the direction it's moving in the States. Now, ironically, the, the military came out this last week and said, well, recruiting is down. Uh, people aren't you know, joining the forces anymore. We don't know why. We're going to change our recruiting strategy. And I thought, wow, fascinating. Here's an idea. Go back to the old military, which was there for the benefit of the state, where the soldiers were taught to do the right thing under the right circumstances at the right time. Make it an effective career again and tell people, you know, the guy next to you can, might not be wearing a dress tomorrow. Um, maybe, maybe, just maybe we can get the military back on track. Uh, but that's a, a long answer to a question that I'm not going to answer. <laughs> right. OK. Yep. We don't want to put you on the spot in anything. I won't touch the RCMP then because <laughs> we know there's that's that's loaded. But I do know I personally know that there's lots of officers who have been extremely stressed in the what's going on nearly three years and with the pressures that have come from a uh, top-down problem that uh, is within the RCMP and with their new union, the N NFP, NPF, I always get that backwards. But you know what? We're just going to keep pressing in. And uh, Tom, I always appreciate having you on. I know that we've got lots of other questions going, but you know what? We'll have to have you back. And, uh, you know, I don't know what issue we'll talk about next time. I mean, there's so, so much that's going on in Canada right now. So in that, uh, we're going to wrap up. Do you have any closing words? Well, just one little thought about the RCMP. Uh, I see the commissioner <laughs> oh, of the RCMP. <laughs> uh, a little yeah. bit. The commissioner of the RCMP <laughs> okay. has a 35% trust level in Canada, and I'm amazed it's that high. The other thing is I saw the some parliamentary documents just came out that inside the RCMP, the seniors of the RCMP were worried that information might be leaking to the convoy, to which I will say, really? Fascinating insight. Thank you for that. Right. End of okay. discussion. Well, you know, a lot of um, the, the guests today that have uh, our, our viewers, whichever way, the people that are joining us here, don't know some of the history with you. Back, but back in 2018, you filed a hundred and correct me, 132 page statement to Commissioner Lucky, the top cop and uh, criminal charges, uh, you know, for Justin Trudeau and a few others being involved in uh, funding terrorism. And then in February of 2019, you submitted more evidence and you even have a case number with which, to the best of our knowledge, Commissioner Lucky has done nothing with it. And uh, so your work for yeah. this country is quite extensive. Yeah, the, the very short answer to that question is... Uh, they blew it off at the highest possible level. Uh, the bigger the brush, the bigger the brush off. Yeah, they buried the whole thing and did nothing with it. I can't say I'm surprised, but at least I can say it's on the record. It's there in the future at some point if an RCMP ever wants to investigate how money in Canada is being misappropriated to fund terrorism and it's being done through the government. Well, the evidence is already there and they can move ahead with it. 
Right. Well, I just wanted uh, people to know that little fun fact about you. I wanted them to know that you've really fought hard for this country. And uh, I appreciate you very much. And I'm very grateful that you came on the show tonight. Cheers. Well, thanks very much. Always fun to be here. Good. We look forward to having you back. All right. Thanks. All right. Ciao. Super. Woo! I told you this was going to be an interesting time with uh, Tom Quiggin tonight. Um, I always love having Tom on. All right, so um, as I said, you know, there are solutions, and I'm just going to cover those again so it's fresh in your mind. Civil disobedience, noncompliance. It is a long-honored tradition when citizens are faced and up against a tyrannical government, somebody that is trying to come in, and uh, take us over from within. It's just not going to fly. And there's more of us than them. There's millions of us. So, you know, there's power in numbers. And I just encourage you to be part of Action for Canada. Help us get the word out there. Help us empower Canadians with the gift of knowledge and the resources that we have. Help us build communities. Help us to vote smarter. Organize groups that are within our chapters with all the amazing resources that we have. We have something for everybody. Help our pastors, the ones that are out there on the front line. I met with Pastor Jacob Room recently. Uh, Ron and I had a meeting with him. I mean, he's been charged millions and millions of dollars, potentially faces 11 years in jail. It's going to go to the courts. We saw what happened for Pastor Arter Pulowski. Three appeal court judges exonerated him, said that uh, Chief Justice Germain's actions were, were basically criminal in, in what he had issued against the campaign against Pastor Arter Pulowski. And I believe that that decision of three appeal court judges is going to set a precedence in this country. But we need to line the pews in the churches of those who are open, and we need to give our support. Uh, Canada as a Christian nation is the absolute core and foundation to our freedom of democracy. As I've repeatedly said, to educate, educate you, but that it is a fact that our whole system of governance and our, our laws are built on Judeo-Christian principles and biblical values, and that does set us apart from totalitarian, communist, and extremist regimes. So... Wow, that was amazing. All right, next week we have Barry Newfeld on, the school trustee in Chilliwack. I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss this one. What an amazing dear man this is who has for six years undergone extreme attack from the unions, from um, individuals that sat on the board with him as trustees. And, you know, I believe that he is going to be exonerated, but he is going to be in court in October. I'll be sending out a whole action Sunday night to give you more information on that. If you are in Ottawa and the date that I'm going to give in October, we hope you'll, uh, you know, take a day off, do whatever you need to be present either on the court steps or within the courtroom. Let's show an incredible amount of support for Barry Newfeld. Uh, the following week, we are, uh, I should add why, uh, you can see at the bottom there, it's about the SOGI 123 resource, which was implemented in BC back in um, 2016. And so Barry was the first one that actually verbalized that this would groom children. And he was exactly dead right on, but he had no support. He had very little support except for from, you know, a group of us who were awake and aware and fighting against this program now. But now they're trying to make this uh, this SOGI specifically go nationally. We're going to put a stop to it. Our new notice of liability that we launched in the summer is having a huge impact. 
but we need all your help. And that's another reason why to join an Action for Canada chapter and help create parents groups and help us get that, this done. Um, I'm excited to say the week after Barry, we're having Patrick Moore come on. We're going to talk about climate change. Of course, he was uh, the founder of Greenpeace, and he's extremely knowledgeable and help can settle some of the information. If any of you are doubting whether there, the, you know, there is this climate whether it's climate propaganda or if it's real, it is climate propaganda. And again, it is involving, or the mission is to control people even further. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned in this AI and digital ID, if you think about the smart meter and how it's going to control your washer, your dryer, your smart fridge, everything that's in your home, and then they can say whether or not you're having what kind of carbon footprint that you're leaving, and they can just decide to shut you off. So let's talk about climate change as well. And then the week after that, if all things work together, I'm going to have some of these amazing pastors on the show. And we're going to talk about how important your vote is and how we as communities can come together to take back all levels of government. So I hope you'll join us as always. Love you so much. Thanks for joining us and God bless you and God bless Canada. Thank God.